does the good outweigh the bad? And the only way that that's going to happen is if we have general guidelines in terms of do we wear seatbelts in AI? Do we, how do we regulate? We have over 600 cameras in the city of St. Louis. We've spent up to 100K a pop on different surveillance technologies, $4 million in the past three years. And we've done it without any real audit or understanding of how the data is being used. Are they being used ethically? The ethical questions surrounding artificial intelligence are huge. And the problem currently is most of the technologists are gobbled up by the big tech um, companies. So if you're working at, at Facebook on face recognition, you've got an NDA and you can't be a part of these discussions. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. The ethics surrounding this technology and the questions regulators will need to address are a big topic at the Prepare 2020 conference now underway in St. Louis. It's hosted by Prepare.ai. They're a nonprofit based right here. Now, this year, the conference is virtual, and that means you can join from anywhere. It takes place throughout the month. The issues it's grappling with are ones Tinas LaRue has thought about a lot. He's the founder and CEO of FanCam, and he moved to St. Louis more than a year ago to help facilitate the company's new focus which involves artificial intelligence. And he joins us today. Tinas, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah. It's great to join. So tell us a bit about FanCam. What was the original idea uh, for this company? Well, um, it started about 10 years ago. Um, and it, my business partner and I figured out how to take really high-resolution images. Um, and so being sports nuts, we took it to a a, a big local rugby game and use the cameras to, to ca capture the crowd. Mm -hmm. And so when we, it took us about four days to put this image together, but when we did, it went completely viral. Um, so much so that we started getting emails from all around the world, um, sports teams saying, please come take pictures of our crowds. Mm -hmm. So from there, um, we jumped on a plane and, and started a business. And that business, um, we've, because we, we were the first to do it, we were lucky enough to be invited to capture the Super Bowl, uh, Daytona 500, uh, most of the U2 shows, Taylor Swift shows, hmm. uh, Stanley Cup final, and a number of events around the world. So that, that's the origin story. And then uh, the computer vision and artificial intelligence part came a bit later. Uh, but I think you had a question. Yeah, and actually that question was going to be, so, so where did you end up taking that? I understand that having a great photo of yourself and your friends having fun at a stadium, there, there's some great joy in that. But you started to realize this technology could be used for even more uh, than just yeah, a fun souvenir. So, so that's exactly it. So about five years in and having to look at fan photos for a living, <laughs> <laughs> we started picking up that these crowds... Uh, were different. We, we'd capture like two college football games, both sold out. But as the game started, one would be half the seats would be empty, and the other would be full. So <laughs> I was started wondering why is that? Is it because their tailgating is so popular, or is it because traffic is a problem? And so we realized that um, yes, we're giving the fans this this cool digital memento, but maybe there's some interesting data in looking at these crowds as a whole. So being a, a lazy engineer, I thought instead of me just counting seats, couldn't we uh, train computers to do that for us? Hmm. And so the answer is you can. And that's how we got introduced to this whole world of artificial intelligence and computer vision. So fast forward that five years later, we've now trained computers to look at these crowds 
and, and to, to uh, help teams understand their fans a bit better, understand when they're leaving their seats, uh, what merchandise are they wearing, um, and, and some example we're working on now is how many people are wearing masks um, and how close are they together so we can hmm. create a safe environment for, for sports fans to return. And so this is something where the camera doesn't just capture these people, it's also able to provide some analysis of, of maybe who they are and, and what they're doing. And not who they are, that's, but that's a very good question. So that, that's a, as I went into this world, and that, that's why I'm speaking at pre Prepare, um, on the, the ethics of facial recognition because we had to learn a lot about the difference between face detection and face analysis and recognition and AI and these things. And there are, these things are different. Um, so what we do, we, we don't touch facial recognition. Um, it's a, it, it's a, uh, ethically, it's, it's dubious. In fact, I am, I'm passionately against the use of facial recognition in, in, in public spaces. Hmm. But what we do do is... Um, is use computer vision to analyze these images for uh, more generalized data. So if, uh, give you the, go back to the example of the empty seats. That is something that doesn't require facial recognition. It's actually um, object recognition. What we do there is we actually count the empty seats hmm. more so than analyze the faces. But you can go further. You can um, train computers to say, well, tell me not just how many fans are in the building, but uh, how many what's the male-female distribution? Because teams want to know that. They want to know if their efforts to reach female fans are actually um, effective. So you don't care that I, Sarah Fenske, am in the crowd. Why would anybody care about that? The team would might be interested, though, in my demographics. It might allow them to market uh, the advertising in the stadium to me better, or it might allow them to figure out why I keep leaving my seat. A, a middle-aged woman exactly. is bored, something like that. Or, or she's in the sun, or, or whatever. Or, or she's... Um, always joined by other women of her age or she's bringing a family uh, member stats like that um the, the teams want to create a place that fans enjoy and so if the team thinks that the average age is 55 they're going to play the wrong music um uh, because the, the 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 crowd's age may be 25 so it's it's things like that but the technology itself can't identify you mm -hmm. um it's, it's it's and it's also even if they could Google knows you're there and Apple knows you're there. There really isn't any business model in, in trying to identify fans. Yeah, that, that does make sense. And as, uh, as Tina said, I don't want to forget to mention this PREPARE conference. They're going to be going more in-depth on this issue. They have a, a panel about social impact and ethical implications involving artificial intelligence. That, that is on Wednesday, October 28th. They also have a session coming up on October 21st uh, that focuses on AI at work at, and at home. You can find more information about that conference on our website. That's stlpublicradio.org. And I also want to introduce a second voice into our conversation today. Um, she's somebody who has some thoughts on this subject, both on the possibilities here and some of the peril that can come with it, as, as Tinas will be discussing on his panel um, in a couple weeks. And Sarah Baker is the policy director of the ACLU of Missouri. Uh, Sarah, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Sarah. Great to be here. So some of this technology, I mean, it seems amazing, like the fact that the Cardinals could now have a sense of, yes, our fans are, are precisely 52% male and 48% female or vice versa. That seems like something that, that's useful for the Cardinals to know. Where does it cross the line into something where it begins to give you some qualms? 
Yeah, I think Tina alluded to this a bit earlier. It's when those ethical implications come into play, and particularly when they collide with constitutional obligations and the right to privacy that we have in our country. And I think, you know, in the way in which many technologies are being used, on the surface, the purpose is benign, and even for having fun and for expanding technology and improving human life. But the other implication of that is what rights are we willing to sacrifice in order to engage with those technologies. And that centers really on your right to privacy, and if you are consenting to being surveilled or not, and how that data is being used on the back end as well. Do you see a difference in my right to privacy, say, if I'm on a public street, say I'm walking down market, or if I'm there at a game where I've paid to be there and I'm putting myself in a place where, um, frankly, a sports journalist might capture me uh, rooting for a fan. I might be captured on the, the um, uh, what are those big things called? You guys know what the I'm talking jumbotrons. about. The jumbotrons. <laughs> Do I have a right to privacy in that environment? Yeah, you have different zones of privacy, certainly, um, you know, under the U.S. Constitution. And I think what, what most people would want to experience is being able to consent, right, to when you're being surveilled and when you're not being surveilled. And, for example, not the technology that we're discussing today, because as I understand it, the current technology that tennis is using doesn't involve um facial recognition, but technologies that do involve facial recognition can be really intrusive into private spheres. In fact, the city of St. Louis, um, just this past summer, allowed persistent surveillance technology systems to take um, a greater role in our city, meaning that we're going to investigate what a partnership looks like with them. And that could involve surveillance of the entire city. And in fact, in Baltimore, that means that 90% of outdoor activities are surveilled. And I think we're getting into a point where we need to make sure that we're having robust conversations like this when we're putting our privacy rights on the line, because I think we have a shared value around wanting to keep some aspects of our lives private to ourselves. Tina, is this something that people within the tech community are talking about and, and having conversations about, you know, this question of where do we draw the line or, or what are the, the limits of, of what we can do and should do? I, I think there is a growing movement. Um, I, I just watched The Social Dilemma um, uh, last night, and I, I can recommend it to people because it's, while not um, on, on computer vision, it, it does speak to uses of AI, in that case, <laughs> bad AI. So I think these conversations are, um, are coming up uh, and more employees at the big tech because, frankly speaking, it, it is, it, it, the problem lies in, in the larger corporations. These tools are, as Sarah said, and she's 100% I'm right, there, there have been nine in individual cases, but when they get rolled out in mass surveillance, th th that's, that's scary. So um, to answer your question, I think there's a growing movement. But I think the legal framework is, is, is still behind, hmm. and we need to catch up. Um, so, so in Illinois, for instance, there's a, there's a good uh, piece of legis uh, law that uh, BIPA, um, Biometric Information and Privacy Act, that does try to address these things. And, um, and California is caught up, but most of the other states, um, there aren't guidelines. And so that's why a conference like, like PREPARE is so important, because it brings technologists and civil um, liberty folks and just society in general together to discuss these things so that we can we can push for guidelines that um, that protect us and <laughs> frankly protect our children. Sarah, do you see anything afoot um, either in St. Louis or in Missouri that would try to get a handle on some of these issues uh, from a regulation standpoint? Yeah, I think Illinois is definitely a step ahead of us when it comes to their Biometric Information Privacy Act. But we do have current legislation before 
uh, the Board of Aldermen in the city of St. Louis, Board Bill 95, sponsored by Alderwoman Annie Rice, that would put into place some really common sense guardrails for how surveillance technology is used in the city of St. Louis. Similar to BIPA, it would require, you know, a written policy so that we understand what the parameters are in the city of St. Louis. It would require reporting so we can make sure that technology isn't being used in an abusive way that targets particular communities. It would make sure that the data access is secured so we know who is watching it and importantly, who is watching the watchers as well. Because again, many of these technologies on the front end for the user can be an interesting experience. But on the back end, when this data is shared with law enforcement, for example, it has significant and perilous impacts for individuals' privacy rights in, in our city and across the metro area. Tina, this yeah, idea I of... I can just add on to uh, that. Actually, uh, that'd be great. I, I agree 100%. Um, I, I see a li- read a lot of articles about law enforcement using facial recognition, and uh, I would I would say just a hard no on that. Um, I think there are a lot of low-hanging fruit that law enforcement can focus on, um, and this is a complex issue that is... Uh, that society still needs to grapple, as with all new technologies. So I agree 100% with Sarah there. We talk about law enforcement using facial recognition in, in ways that are troubling. Do we feel differently about license plates? It seems like there's already a lot going on in St. Louis um, where they're able to uh, track license plates. If a car has been stolen, there's technology that sort of uh, automatically alerts the police anytime it drives past certain cameras. Uh, Sarah, do we feel differently about that since it's not our face? And, and yes, there's a ton of stolen cars in this city. Yeah, it's it's more about how the web of surveillance technology interacts. You know, we have over 600 cameras in the city of St. Louis. We've spent up to 100K a pop on different surveillance technologies, and we've spent over $4 million in the past three years on these types of surveillance technologies. And we've done it without any real audit or understanding of how the data is being used, are they being used ethically. And I think that is, in principle, what needs to change. And when it comes to license plate leaders, readers, I think folks look at those and think, well, it can help with stolen cars. That is true. The other implication, though, is it could track an individual for uh, where they're meeting who they're meeting up with, uh, where they go to church. So there are implications that I think have to be written in to um, surveillance technology policies so that we can make sure that in every aspect of our lives, we're considering the full picture and not just the initial gut reaction of, of course, all of us want to live in safe communities. But how can we um, both uphold safety and our individual rights to privacy and make sure we're protected on both counts? And Sarah, my understanding is this is not just an abstract question, that there was some stuff that happened in Minneapolis where it became clear that that law enforcement had in its hands all sorts of data that that showed where an individual was going. Does that case uh, sort of put some fuel on the fire there? Yeah, this is a little bit older, but yes, it was the mayor of Minneapolis. Um, There was public data released on sort of where he was traveling, right? And then, you know, a few days after that, he called for a halt to that sort of release of license plate reader data. And I think we can get ahead of the ball here. In many ways, I think St. Louis and and our whole infrastructure, as we try to keep the law in step with technology, is far behind. But we can do better by passing things like Board Bill 95 and setting in place those um, guardrails to make sure that we address these problems. So this Board Bill 95 sounds great, but I could also see the potential flip side of it. I know a lot of times St. Louis City will act because the state of Missouri isn't acting. Tina, Mm -hmm. is it at all a concern for people working in the tech space if cities end up coming up with completely different regulations for this kind of stuff? That's just not how technology works. It it doesn't stay within the borders of a municipality. That's a very good good point because I I think there needs to be international guidelines. Hmm. Um, 
regarding these things. And, and a lot of this is common sense, and it starts with understanding of how these technologies work. Remember, I, I, I like the, we touched on, on cars, but it's a, it's, it, it may be a good analogy for this type of tech. Um, we, we regulate cars. Um, we didn't w with the first Model T that came out, but after a while we decided there are so many on the roads, we need to choose which side we're going to drive, and we need to, later we added, added seat belts, and, and then we said you need to be 16, and, and so there's a lot of regulations around cars. So people can still use cars to drive into a crowd of protesters and use it illegally and immorally. Um, but the, the good outweighs the bad. The question around this new technology of AI is, does the good outweigh the bad? And the only way that that's going to happen is if we have general guidelines in terms of, do we wear seatbelts in AI? Do we, how do we regulate this? And, and the problem that I'm seeing is I, I, I'm a, a, a passionate supporter of ACLU and the work that Sarah and, and, and colleagues are doing. Um, the question I'll ask is, um, I'd like to see more technologists involved in those discussions to give you and to help with insights in terms of where these things are going. And the problem currently is most of the technologists are gobbled up by the big, big tech um, companies. So mm -hmm. someone working at Facebook can't have the discussion I'm having. I can have it because Fancam is essentially self-funded and it's, it's, it's my company. But if you're working at, at Facebook on face recognition, you've got an NDA and you can't be a part of these discussions. So I, I think that's one side um, uh, note that I'd like to leave is that how do we use opportunities like, like the PREPARE conference to, to get folks out, to share what's happening on the inside um, because uh, people don't want to be evil. People want to use these tools for, for good, um, but sometimes it's, it's more ignorance than malice that gets us into trouble. Hmm. That's a great point. Um, Sarah, in our final minute here, thoughts on, on sort of tech and, and people who are concerned about some of these things coming together. Do you feel like there's enough conversations happening right now between those groups? Yeah, I definitely think that there's space at the table to, to grow that out. I think what we've very unfortunately seen is that we've had city officials too quick to jump on things like spy planes, like persistent surveillance, like cameras, without that really deep understanding and grounding both of the technological and civil liberties implications. So I think conversations like this are really important. And as we consider what we should do going forward, I'd like to emphasize robust discussion and regulation so that we can make sure that these things do uphold core values. Well, Sarah Baker, um, I want to thank you for joining us today so that we can talk about just that. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sarah. And Sarah, again, is the policy director of the ACLU of Missouri. And we want to thank Tinas LaRue, who's the CEO of FanCam and is now based here in St. Louis. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your expertise. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Is listening to an episode of St. Louis on the Air part of your daily routine? If so, suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help new people discover our show. Thank you. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.